Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I'm going to start with a story, and it hadn't been too long ago. It's a true story. It hadn't been too long ago since I told it uh, to this, this group, but I figured this was another good time to, to tell it. So a decade or so ago, there was a, a, what we call a power encounter in Asia, a tremendous power encounter. And that's the phrase missionaries use to talk about what happens when... Um, it's almost like if you remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal, you know, where he called down fire and the thing lit up, but they could not do it. Um, it's where, uh, you know, um, it's just a confrontation between God and the forces of evil. And a f- about a decade ago, there was a power encounter like that, which resulted in several thousand Maru people in Myanmar uh, becoming Christians. So in 1997, there were several Christian Maru villages, and the main Buddhist temple in the area could not make the Christians recant, so they decided to persecute them into submission. If you can't beat them, beat them, right? Um, so the monks, they hired a gang of rough men to visit the Christian villages and burn down the churches and pastors' homes and beat the Christians. And a group of those brutal men was dispatched from the main town to, uh, to do that. But as they crossed a mountain pass on their way to the very first Maru village, a freak thunderstorm hit and a bolt of lightning hit the persecutors and killed them all instantly before they could go do what they had set out to do. Another lightning bolt at the same time hit the 300-year-old Buddhist temple and it burned to the ground. <laughs> a second team of thugs was armed with chains and clubs and they were dispatched to go via raft to another Christian village located on the banks of the local river. And as their raft floated downstream to their destination, they're set in a heavy, unseasonably thick fog on the river. And the men couldn't see a thing in front of them, including a fast-moving barge that slammed into their raft, sinking it and causing many of the would-be persecutors to drown. So they had set out with the design and being paid to go persecute and attack the Christians. And a bolt of lightning took out one group and a fog took out another. When news of these events circulated, the, the Maru people acknowledged that God had judged the monks and the hired men because of their plans to attack the Christians, and many of many more Maru put their faith in Christ, which is a pretty cool story, you know. So we serve a God who works miracles. I believe both those things were miracles sent from God to protect uh, the baby Christians that were there and the, the very few of them, you know. Um, so you're filling the blank is miracles. Often extraordinary ones, extraordinary miracles happen in a spiritually dark place to prepare the way for the saving message of Jesus Christ. But 
every time a, God turns a sinner into a saint through the new birth experience, a miracle happens. So praise the Lord. You know, uh, December 16th, 1984, uh, you know, God worked a miracle in my life, had no interest really in God. And all of a sudden, boom, I was a Christian, you know, uh, and looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for hope, meaning, purpose and joy at Christmas time. And a friend uh, tricked me into going to church. I heard the gospel and was saved. And all of a sudden I went from laughing at Christians to being one of them and uh, other people laughing at me as I tried to serve Christ in those early days. Um, so that's the greatest miracle of salvation. But God does work miracles and he works miracles uh, today and especially in spiritually dark places like we just heard about. But today we're going to see Something like that happened in the city of Ephesus, which was notorious for being a headquarters for the occult, a place where demonic activity was manifest in many ways. So we're going to read Acts 19, verse 11 to verse 20. It says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon, the man on whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver." So if you want to know how much that is, go ahead and look on the silver exchange this week and you multiply it times 50,000, right? Uh, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And so from this text, we're going to look at, uh, my title is, Magnify the Name, Don't Misuse It. Magnify the Name, Don't Misuse It. So we start out there in verses 11 and 12, and it tells us about these miracles being worked from uh, handkerchiefs and other things brought from Paul. And we want to first look from verses 11 and 12 at how miracles authenticate, there's the next fill in the blank, authenticate the apostle and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, you know, Luke writes about many miracles in the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, too. But even he was impressed about what was happening in Ephesus. Uh, Warren Wearsby said this about these verses. It says, God enables Paul to perform special miracles because Ephesus was a center for the occult, and Paul was demonstrating God's power right in Satan's territory. So we shouldn't be surprised at places that have a lot of demonic expressions around the world where sometimes we see more of these power encounters happen. Warren Wearsby said, But keep in mind that wherever God's people minister the truth, Satan sends a counterfeit to oppose the work. Um, now, if people refuse to believe in Satan and demons, uh, then 
he can work more stealth like he does in America, you know. But where people understand that there's uh, dark forces and spirits out there, uh, sometimes they understand uh, more when a miracle happens. So just like what happened with the Maru people of China, these miracles happened to put the fear of God into people so they would realize they were sinners who needed to turn to Jesus in faith. And so this is one of the few times in the Bible, there's not many, uh, this is one of the few times in the Bible we see healing power flow from an object, not a person praying over somebody, uh, but from an object. Back in 2 Kings 13, 21, healing power flowed from the prophet Elisha's bones and raises a dead man to life. Y'all remember that story? They threw a man on top of his bones and all of a sudden he uh, raised up to life. That's pretty wild, huh? That's, that's not the place to throw uh, uh, dead Uncle Elmer if you want him to stay dead, you know. In Luke 8, people were healed when they touched Jesus' what? His, his hem, hem of his robe, right. And, of course, they're based on Malachi. You know, J Jews uh, would wear robes, prayer robes, prayer shawls, and they had tassels at the end. Uh, and Joe, Jesus, as an observant Jew, probably had that, and that's what it was referring to. Uh, it's the same word for wings. And so when at the end of Malachi it says the Son of, uh, the son of Righteousness will come with healing in His wings, uh, they believed in the first century that when the Messiah comes, you'd be able to touch those uh, prayer corners of His shawl, those wings of His shawl, and that you could be healed. And that's what that lady was expressing through faith when she did that. And Jesus knew that it had been an act of faith on her part. In Acts 5.15, people may have been healed as Peter's shadow crossed their path. Do you remember that? So there have been some of these, but again, you know, the Bible's got nearly 1,200 chapters. There ain't many times where something like that comes up. Now, when we read of such things, we immediately think of two things, or I do anyway. The first are those so-called miracle workers in our day, people like Benny Hinn, you know. Now, Benny Hinn's been disgraced and stuff, uh, and others like him. But, you know, you figure if he really had a gift for healing, he'd go over to the children's hospital every day rather than wear $10,000 suits and, you know, heal the same guy in San Antonio that it looks like he healed in Houston the night before and stuff, you know. Um, but we think about those that have big healing meetings and have extravagant lives and make all kinds of promises and tell you for the right price, they'll send you a holy hanky that will work a miracle for you if you have enough faith, you know. Some of these guys, uh, they have you send in letters and they make a big deal on TV of laying on top of the letters, you know, uh, and they're praying for your need and they'll send you different things. And it's just a shame. My father-in-law calls those kind of TV stations that have a whole lot of that on, they call, he calls it the doodah channel. <laughs> you know? um, but the second we think about, uh, thing I think about with this is all the people throughout history who being ignorant of the scriptures have sought out some kind of relic of some kind, hoping it had healing power in it. This was a big thing for Catholics in the Middle Ages and for some people still today, you know. There are pilgrimage that happens to happen to Catholic shrines if there's a supposed miracle that happened around there and people want to go and drink the same water, you know, or they want to touch the same statue or they want to do this or that. They want to have the same experience so they too can get, get their miracle. Now, last week we talked about how the book of Acts tells us what happened and then we turn to the pages of the letters of the apostles to see what we're commanded to do or to not do. Um, so it's not enough just to see something that happened in the scriptures. We want to make sure we're commanded to do it or, and that we're right with those commands. And the great Old Testament example of this is, uh, you know, uh, 
the uh, fellow that uh, said, I'll sacrifice uh, Jephthah. Uh, I'll, uh, Lord, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing I see when I get home, you know. And uh, God gave him the victory. First thing he saw when he got home was his daughter. And the context, people argue about it, but the context looks like after she had a period of time with her friends, he actually sacrificed her. Well, there's plenty of Old Testament command scriptures that told Israel, we don't do what Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth do. We don't, we don't kill our children and call it faith, you know. Um, and yet, uh, so uh, the narrative says what happens, but it wasn't necessarily that he was doing the right thing, you know, even though he was otherwise a man of faith. Um, and we've got examples of that in the New Testament. This week illustrates that principle again, because nowhere in the pages of doctrine are we, are we that's the fill in the blank, the word we, nowhere in the pages of doctrine are we commanded to have sensational healing ministries and promote any kind of relic ministry, you know. So listen, um, you know, if you see my handkerchief fall to the ground, uh, don't, don't pick it up and think, oh man, I can, I can, you know, blow my own nose with that and good spiritual things will happen, you know, because uh, 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 no, you, you probably don't even want to pick it up, you know. <laughs> you want to get a, bring the hazmat team in and stuff to get it and that sort of thing. But um, in James 5, the elders of the church are told to pray over the sick using oil, but it's clear there the power to heal is God's alone sought in prayer, not the symbolic oil. In fact, uh, as you may have heard me teach before, it may very well be that when it says, call for the elders and they'll anoint you with oil even as they pray over you, it may relate back to the Acts passage that talks about how the people were so generous in their giving, they were bringing their money to the apostles. And it may be that the apostles and the church leadership had the money to buy medicines that others couldn't get to, oils, you know, essential oils turn into medicines and things like that, right? And so he may be saying, you know, what you can't do for yourself, you can't get a hold of a nice oil that might help you medicinally. The elders, before we had Medicare and all that, you know, the church leaders may be able to bring stuff over to help you even as they pray for your spiritual needs. So that may be what that's all about. Now, obviously, throughout the Bible, there's a sim symbolism with anointing things with oil, too. So that's the main way people take it. But we have to remember that Acts 19 happens before the New Testament is completed. These miracles confirm Paul as an apostolic messenger since there was no completed New Testament to determine the truth of his message. And they also prove he was an apostle on par with who else? In the book of Acts, who does comparable miracles to Paul? And it's very obvious God's trying to communicate a point about these writers of Scripture. What other big apostle? Somebody said it. Peter. Yeah, Peter. That's right. So some of the things we saw Peter do in the first chapters of Acts, God's now authenticating that Paul, unusual things are happening through him too. Uh, and so that's why I put here for you 2 Corinthians 12, 12 in your notes, because it's a key verse. Paul says, the signs of an apostle were performed among you in all endurance, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So God still works miracles. Amen. He sometimes do it, does it through humble workers who give God the glory, but there are no more apostles like Paul and Peter were apostles after the New Testament was completed. Now, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm saying sometimes I've prayed over people and amazing things have happened, and maybe you have too. You know, God is very gracious that way. Uh, one time a, a lady 
um, you know, um, that had a cancer, asked me to pray over her. And she said, Danny, as you prayed, I felt like lightning went down my back. Next time she went to the doctor, they said the cancer was gone. Doesn't mean I'm a healer. Um, you know, it means God decided to heal. And he um, was just gracious in that moment, you know, to show he still does stuff like that. But Danny didn't do it. God does it, you know. Um, so if you are saved and you have a gift of healing and you pray over people and they get healed, by all means do it. You know, uh, don't say, well, the pastor said that can't happen. <laughs> no, God can do anything. And, he, you know, so pray over people. Uh, pray in Jesus' name. You know, the only, the only healing guaranteed for a believer is the ultimate healing. Amen? So God may have a purpose for us to walk through a journey of cancer uh, or through this or that or the other. Um, but ultimate healing will be in heaven. And we always have to rem remember that. Um, it's not about us, it's about Jesus. Well, there's four key miracle periods in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about the miracle periods in the Bible. Three are past, and one is yet to come. Miracles affirm the ministry of Moses as he gave the law to Israel, and they exited, got out of Pharaoh's clutches. There were miracles then, and then as they, the law was given. The prophets Elijah and Elisha as they ministered during very dark days and the ministry of Jesus and His apostles as the age of grace began. The one that is yet to come, though, is, we're told, the Antichrist and the false prophet will deceive all but the truly elect through working false wonders and stuff. Uh, many people, they thought they were Christians or knew God, but really were not, will be taken in by those false miracles during that, those days of the tribulation. So we need to beware of charlatans. Uh, and when people come and say things, uh, most of the time they'll be shown if they're having sensational ministries that most of the times that'll be shown to be a fraud. Which the next verses tell us more about. So verses 13 through 16, it's so interesting. This is right after it tells us about Paul there because spiritual warfare can backfire. There's your fill in the blank. It can backfire on unspiritual people. So in verses 13, 16, we learn about uh, seven sons of Siva that are Jewish exorcists, and uh, we're told that they were frauds. Now, there was never, as far as we know, a Jewish high priest named Sceva. <laughs> so there's the first thing. <laughs> These guys were saying, oh, we're, we're, we're descendants. We're the sons of the great high priest Sceva. Well, as far as we know, there wasn't one. Um, but the people who fell for this group's lies didn't know that. They saw what Paul did or heard about it and decided they could incorporate that into their religious hucksterism, you know, so... Always been religious hucksters, always will. But it sounds a lot like a lot of those uh, TV healers today. Now, you would think that no one with a Jewish background would try to combine Jewish faith with magic practices. But numerous ancient Jewish non-biblical texts tell us of the interplay of magic and Judaism. And I think, what is it, Kabbalism today? is uh, Kabbalism or something like that today uh, is very mystic and spiritual and would be more open, I think. Was it Madonna, the singer, that was very open to that uh, fringe, uh, heretical version of, uh, of Judaism for a while? I think it was. But in their day, they saw the healing power flow from Paul, and they decided to incorporate that into their act. But boy, does it backfire big time. I just get tickled when I read verses 15 and 16. Did you see that there? So they said, we're going to cast uh, demons out. We'll say, we command you to come out by the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they had heard that there's 
you know, healing in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And so they try to do that. But verse 15, uh, if it didn't give you the uh, shivers too bad, it would be very funny. It says, but the evil spirit answered and said, well, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Man. Um, and so this is very sobering. It says, The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So get this. There's seven of them. There's one man possessed with a demon. The demon's able to get out, whoop them all, undress them, uh, and they get out of there, you know. Uh, wow. Wow. They went out naked and humiliated, learning there, there is no magic in the name of Jesus as such, right? That, that's not something you can harness that way, like a genie in a bottle or something. Now, we might see such things as believers and shy away from spiritual conflict when it comes our way, but we have to avoid the extremes here. We don't need to be looking for a demon behind every bush like some people seem to do, but we also need to be ready for the inevitable spiritual battles that will come our way. And as I've counseled people, you know, there's, there's times you can just feel that presence there. You know, there's just a, a dark cloud. People have disobeyed God so much. They've given the devil a foothold. He's got a stronghold. And uh, one of the things you got to do is, uh, you know, walk them through the fact that they might be very much being harassed by a demon, you know, and demonic activity and stuff. So Paul later wrote back to the Ephesian believers to remind them how. And let's just look at it real quick ourselves. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You'll know that we're turning to the armor of God. That's a familiar chapter, Ephesians 6, that ends with the great armor of God. Verse 10 is where we start. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We can't be strong in our own strength. We don't have strength like the Lord has strength. We're to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And then verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God. So first we have to consider ourselves as soldiers, right? As soldiers for the Lord. Um, and it says, then put on the whole armor of God. A soldier doesn't go out to fight with, uh, out his Kevlar vest on, you know, and those things. Uh, he doesn't go out in his, uh, um, you know, Washington commander's briefs, you know, or whatever he's got there. You know, he, he, get, he, put on, he puts on the armor first. That he's, and what's the purpose of this? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the arrows of the devil, you know, the attacks of the devil. Uh, so there's a spiritual armor that we need to visualize ourselves put on. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it's important. People are not our enemy. We talked about some of the political decisions that were disgusted by earlier. Uh, but we know that what's happened is people have given themselves over to a dark, satanic way of looking at things. And now they're basically saying, well, we reject God's word and what God says about truth. And um, in many ways, the people that we're disagreeing with and having to uh, confront in uh, dialogue and in debate and things like that, in many ways, our hope is to eventually win them to Christ. And so it's important that we speak the truth in love and don't just, you know, enter into fleshly battles with people and stuff. Uh, I think about the great story, uh, that movie from, um, what was the movie a couple years ago where the pro-life, uh, it was a pro-life movie, 
and her name was Abby Johnson. At one time, she'd been a big uh, clinic worker for abortion and seen lots of abortions happen, and she got saved and became one of the main Christian uh, influences in promoting pro-life work uh, throughout the country, you know. And she said, you know, in large part it was because of the gracious way of interacting with her, uh, you know, that a, a pastor and others had done. You know, she was always kind of rude to them and curt with them, you know, and yet they were kind and considerate even as they were disagreeing with her and, and, and urging the ladies not to have an abortion as they went in. And they wound up uh, eventually becoming, you know, well, her church family and stuff, which is pretty cool. Um, so, you know, get the battle lines drawn right. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So picture truth like a belt around your waist. Without a belt, your pants fall down sometimes. We need truth to keep our pants up. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's Christ's righteousness. It's our commitment to do the things He would do if He was here. And uh, righteousness, uh, you know, can deflect uh, arrows that Satan's shooting at us if it gets through the other things. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, so you're putting on boots that um, have a mind uh, directed by the Lord sometimes, and it's saying, you know, I want to go where you want me to go with your gospel, Lord. Uh, I, um, you know, I think my day is going to involve these things, and those shoes might all of a sudden take you over a different direction for a little bit uh, in reliance on the Holy Spirit. So uh, I, have, I remember that and think about that when I'm, Many days I start visualizing myself putting on the armor. I don't know if y'all any of y'all do that, but it's just my visual commitment. Today I'm going to walk with the Lord and be ready for whatever opportunities He gives, knowing it can involve some spiritual warfare. Uh, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So as we're advancing, Satan shooting at us, it's faith that says the same God who worked in David to be defeated Goliath, the same God who worked in Jesus when he defeated the temptations. You know, the Son of God was being aided by the Holy Spirit as he met those temptations. Um, you know, I will have temptations today too, and I have faith that I'll be able to apply the word as those times come. Uh, and take the helmet of salvation. Interestingly, you know, uh, when Colorado implemented a helmet law, they, all of a sudden their organ donations went up because more people were surviving their motorcycle wrecks when they started wearing the helmets, you know. Uh, so uh, with the helmet of salvation, we can still fall and get bruised up and stuff like that. But God's helmet of salvation for us uh, gives us a security, you know, that, that we're not just going to die out there. Um, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God. Some people say, well, that's the only offensive weapon mentioned here. You know, as we share God's truth, it gives the gospel that will lead people to Jesus. It helps us say specific things about, uh, you know, like uh, some of the things that are going on in our country. The Word of God helps us speak truth into those things about Satan's lies and stuff. But actually, it's one of two offensive weapons because what does the next thing say? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So prayer and the Word of God go together. And guys, I tell you, Danny Campbell's experiencing it more now than he ever has, how as I pray about stuff, stuff happens, you know. Uh, as I pray the Word about situations, things happen, and God goes before. And I can think of very specifically December of 2021 asking God, God, there's some things as far as being a leader and other things that need to be addressed and stuff like that, I'm asking you specifically, to, and you know what, they've all happened this year. 
And so now I'm making my list of things that need to happen by next year, you know, and presenting them to the Lord. So uh, a robust prayer life is an offensive thing with the Lord, you know, uh, because he's the one that does it. Uh, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So some of you all were praying while I was in Africa. I'll tell you what, them pastors, they asked some questions that were, I was like, how in the world am I going to answer that? And several times I thought, okay, Lord, help me. And in the back of my mind, it came to the front several times. Well, people have been praying for you, Danny, for this kind of moment, you know. And I gave a great answer um, in the moment. And you guys helped that happen through your own prayer. That was an offensive thing together, you know. And so we want to pray when our Good News Club missionaries go out and pray while Juana's meeting and pray while Word of Life is happening and pray uh, while we're sharing the gospel and while the preacher's preaching on Sunday and all those different things. But all those things. So... The armor of God starts the helmet of salvation, and the sons of Sceva, they didn't have the helmet. They didn't have any of it. They didn't know the Lord, right? They just wanted to make money, and they wanted to utilize uh, uh, this for themselves. So um, verses 17 through 20 tells us appropriate responses to the Lord. So the seven sons of Sceva, they were trying to... Uh, you know, be hucksters with the word. And uh, so, but the responses in verse 17 through 20, let's look at verse 17 again. It says, This became known both to the Greek Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. So there's the first one. The appropriate response first is the fear of God, knowing that He's God and we're not, that God is the measure of all things, not man. He's the creator, we're the created. He's the lawgiver, we're the ones who are governed. And a person who fears God will care more what he thinks than what man says. So a lot of politicians talk about being Christians, but then when they open their mouth, it shows they don't fear God. Um, you know, and we've seen this with uh, presidents down to others, you know, uh, that uh, if somebody opens their mouth and rejection of the Bible comes out, that person doesn't fear God. And sometimes preachers, you know, you hear it from them too, you know. Uh, and that person will be led to moments of being awestruck in his presence, the person that does fear God. Um, like Isaiah, right? Isaiah had this encounter with God in Isaiah chapter 6. He, in the year that King Uzziah died, they're all wondering, the nation's so unstable, what's next, right? And in that year, Uzziah, after 55 years of Uzziah ruling, he dies, and Isaiah is praying, Lord, what's the country going to do? What are we going to do next? This is all we've ever known, you know? And, uh, and, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, Right? And uh, when he does, when he, when, he, when he sees God on the throne so much greater than Uzziah, perfectly holy, what does he do? He, he, he is struck with fear, right? Struck with awe. And he says, oh, no, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now I've seen God, and he, he, he would just get me, you know. Um, I remember something like that happening to me uh, in college. I was a sophomore. Sophomore? Yeah. And um, I was president of one of the school organizations there at Bryan. And for some reason, they asked me to lead a communion, not in the context of church, uh, but in the context of we're at a Christian college, we love the Lord, um, you know, uh, do this. And I had not done that before. And a little bit wise in my own eyes, a little bit uh, cavalier, you know. Um, and so I said yes. I didn't really know what all that meant, 
but I studied the scripture and, and, and when that group of believers got together, I think it was at a sophomore chapel or something. There's not many of us, you know, maybe a, a couple hundred uh, around, but I, I, I was leading that time. And um, man, when that was done, I felt like God was going to strike me dead. Now, some of that was I hadn't really reflected on how communion should pretty much be done as a church thing. You know, the body gathered together and not uh, as much when a parachurch group is doing something on the side. So that's I'll set that aside, though, because I'm not saying that's always wrong to do because, you know, people do that. I'm just saying I know what happened to me in that moment. And I thought I was not spiritually mature enough to do that. I was not spiritually prepared to do that. And I'm not sure uh, I had really studied how it should be done. Now, you know, God's a holy God. And he dealt with me after that. And I said, I want to get this stuff right before I ever do that again. And it was years later before I was the one leading a communion service. I think about why it was such a big deal to God when they tried to move the Ark of the Covenant. And David wanted to move the Ark to Jerusalem so that it'd be there rather than among the Philistines. And um, he really didn't study it. You know, had to be the priest moving it. He just had anybody moving it. And so when they reached out to write it, he had to wrong guys without spiritual preparation, without really that maturity there. And they, they died, right? They died. If you notice, a couple chapters later, when David and them do move it to Jerusalem, they are now doing all the things that the law called for that they'd missed the first time. They're very careful. And that's a, that's a reflection of fearing God. I want to get this right for God. Um, well, the second thing uh, that will characterize, that will characterize uh, appropriate responses to the Lord is the worship of Jesus as God. So look at verse 17. It says, This became known, so fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So now instead of the name of Jesus being abused or maligned, the name of Jesus is being magnified. So an appropriate response uh, is fear and then worship. The third one is confession of sinful ways. Look at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Uh, they responded to what happened by realizing they were still dabbling in some of their own sinful occult practices that were part of their lives before turning to Christ. And the same uh, is true oftentimes of uh, people in the church. And we need to listen when God reveals things. You know, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why this past Sunday's message struck a chord with many people. Like, you know, I've been I've, I've got this compromised faith and, you know, now I need to get serious about Jesus and sin. Um, heard some testimonies afterwards from people talking about how, you know, God has delivered them from alcoholism or this or that or the other. And just very grateful for that. They came confessing and disclosing their sins so they could be forgiven of them, and so those things would lose the power they had. Now, uh, we, of course, can always go to God and confess, uh, but sometimes it helps to have human accountability too. And so these people are coming before others and saying, you know, and it's not that every sin should be talked about before the church. That can turn into its own kind of problem and stuff like that, you know, but it does help to bring things that are in darkness into the light. And I've had two or three conversations with people like that this week that hopefully will help them get to the other side of a besetting sin. I think about the beautiful song uh, that we used to sing, 
It's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things that we leave behind. Peter later wrote, There has already been enough time spent doing the will of the pagans, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. In regard to this, they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they slander you. They will have to give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So fear leads to worship, leads to confession, and finally, number four there, getting rid of sinful ways. Look at Acts 19, 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So this impact had such an impact that many believers who had practiced sorcery and magic now brought the tools of the art to be burned. And I can tell you, around the world, there's a folk version of Catholicism, sometimes a folk version of Christianity, um, folk Islam or whatever, that even though they say they're Catholics or Christians or Muslims, uh, oftentimes it's those old pagan ways that are really being practiced underneath things. And there's a mixture and a whole lot of it got mixed in with Catholicism and gets practiced around the world. So every time uh, Christians get there and really have a back to the Bible movement, uh, some of these pagan ways we've mixed in have to go. And this was this brought about revival. This Skiva incident, you know, uh, brought about revival where they feared God, they worshipped Him, uh, they confessed their sins, and then they said, well, "We got to get rid of our stuff too." Hey, let's all do it together. You know, let's have a party where we get rid of our stuff that's no longer good. So Ephesus was famous for its magical scrolls with all sorts of strange words and spells, and Paul's teaching convinced them of the worthlessness of such things. Um, and I just think about us, so many of us are in denial about how much we really love the world. You know, so many things are gathering Christians' attention these days rather than love for Jesus, love for His Word. Here we see the early Christians act to remove the power those things had over them, and we should do it as well. Now, folks, I believe churches are foolish to have organized book burning, so that's why we don't have it as a regular service during the week. You know, okay, we're going to have a bonfire, you know, after Sunday night's uh, time together, and we're going to get out here and burn books and stuff like that. But I do believe Christians are wise to get rid of what Satan uses to mess up people. And every once in a while, uh, somebody will come to me and they'll be convicted about something. They plan to get rid of their old heavy metal albums or whatever. You know, I did that after I became a Christian and stuff. But what they'll do is they say, well, but I want to make a little money from it, you know. So I'm going to bring them down to the goodwill, you know. And let me tell you what, if, if you can't any longer listen to something in faith like that, don't bring it to goodwill. Just destroy it, right? Nobody needs to hear it anymore, right? Uh, and that's true with some books we have and other things. And again... Uh, we, we too need to separate from sin. And if it's bad for you, don't sell it in a yard sale for someone else to get hurt by it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. If you have something associated with the occult, the best thing to do is get rid of it. Free yourself from its power. And again, we worship idols a little bit differently here in America, but there's some things we need to get rid of. Um, but Mark Hefner, you know, our missionary friend that's been here before, and we've gone on trips with him over in Taiwan and stuff like that. Missionaries over in Taiwan, they know not to play with stuff, you know. Uh, and so sometimes people will go as a tourist to a place like Taiwan, and they'll bring back a little, little. Uh, they don't know what they, they think it's something cute. It's an idol they brought back, you know. And uh, Mark shudders every time he sees something like that in a, that was bought in a tourist kind of way. 
you know, because he's like, you know, I can tell you, I've seen people like candles, pray over, be around stuff like this, and it do, their, do them great harm. And so one of the things they regularly did when a person really turned to Christ in, um, you know, Taiwan was they would uh, have a time with them. They didn't need to make a big deal about it, and you know, but they would have a time with them where people would actually burn their idols just like this, you know, the, the, the ancestor worship altars, the little uh, uh, statues of Buddha or Confucius, if they had those, you know, the other things. Pan Hu is a big one over there, the dragon dog, uh, you know, and stuff like that. So anyway, what a response in Ephesus as these repentant believers got rid of their occult stuff. So one page of silver, I said page, one piece of silver is worth about a day's wages. So 50,000 pieces of silver would be 50,000 days of wages. In other words, That'd be 137 years of wages for one man, 150 men's yearly wages. So they got real, didn't they? They got real. They said, listen, uh, we got all this stuff in our home that's more about worshiping idols than about worshiping God. We do love Jesus now. And because we fear him, because we worship him, because we've confessed our sin, we're getting rid of this stuff, you know. And I've seen believers get rid of thousands of dollars worth of occult things um, or uh, new age things or, you know, just pagan things. Uh, uh, it, it expresses itself different ways in different cultures and stuff. Uh, Tony Evans, the great African-American preacher, you ever hear him talking about when his dad got saved? His dad got saved and came back into the home up there in Baltimore. And he... Uh, went to where all the alcohol was in the kitchen and he started pouring it down the drain and throwing the bottles in bags to be thrown out. And Tony Evans said, what you doing, dad? And he said, son, there's not going to be any of this in the Lord's house anymore. And his dad went in the other room, got all those stacks of Playboys that he had and those magazines, girly magazines, things like that. And Tony Evans said, what you doing, dad? And he said, well, I'm going to go burn these in the fireplace, son. There's not going to be any of this in the Lord's house. And he went room by room, uh, uh, reconsecrating his house for the Lord and his glory. And one of his sons turned into Tony Evans, the great preacher, you know, that has blessed so many people, which is pretty cool. So we need to respond today also. God's calling us to separate for greater freedom in Christ, better magnifying the name. Uh, and so, you know, if you've been part of any sinful activity and want freedom from it, I want to tell you, uh, you know, about a couple of things that I can help with. Um, I have a book in my office called Steps to Freedom in Christ. And it actually, uh, another one is Making Peace with Your Past. And I and others have worked through those books with people. And so as people come to me sometimes and, you know, uh, they're concerned that uh, some occult activity from the past, Ouija boards or whatever, might have some kind of hold on them, we just confess it, renounce it, make sure that's not an ongoing reality for them. Making peace with your past, there may be something, you know, uh, some trends that have uh, led to the kind of uh, unfaithful behavior we have uh, today that we can identify and, and confess it as sin and come to the other side of it, you know. Um, and so if anyone's listening to this online or uh, anyone here tonight uh, wants help with that, uh, I'd be glad to have those conversations uh, with you. Let's pray.
Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.